Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl and I'm sitting next to my beautiful wife, Stephanie Sovendahl. Good afternoon, all. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you guys listening. Today, we're going to focus in on COVID-19. The reason we're doing that is because we pretty much can't talk about anything but COVID-19 currently. We actually uh, had something else planned, but... Yeah, we, we were going to do something like like sonograms or something like that. Hocus pocus. Hocus pocus, but we decided to go with COVID. And I was re- reluctant to do this just because so much is changing with COVID that I feel like when we put a podcast out, it's going to be out there and then everything's going to change. So what I hope we're going to do today is just give you some background, talk about kind of viral infection in general, and then uh, move into some specifics of COVID that hopefully will apply even as we move forward. Let's start by just getting a little background of COVID. And in uh, December 2019, a novel coronavirus was detected in three patients with pneumonia, and they were connected to a cluster of acute respiratory illnesses in Wuhan, China. And that is really where it started. And then we look at today. Today is March 26th when we're recording this podcast. And Steph, where are we at with number of cases? Pull up on your app. How many cases worldwide? All right. So I got an app here that's kind of, you know, keeps going um, real time. So right now it's telling me case-wise, total confirmed cases, 524,316. Pretty big number. And that Um, it's funny because you check this in the morning and then you check it at night and it's constantly going up. So this will be totally out of date. And I hope, hopefully it won't be out of control when you actually listen to this podcast, but that's where we are on March 26. And how many cases in the U.S. total? Uh, total in the U.S., we've got 80,898, almost 81,000. And then obviously New York's our hardest hit state. How many cases do they have? Uh, right now, 37,738. So that's crazy that they have that many. The next closest is New Jersey with 6,876. So huge jump between New Jersey at 6,000 and New York at 37,000. Yeah. And we're obviously feeling the stress here. And I think in Colorado, we're at 1,000 cases, right? Yeah. Just over 1,000. So that, that kind of leads us to our uh, special guest. We have a special guest on today. A friend of mine named Dr. Reed Caldwell is here. Hi, uh, Reed. How are you? Hello. Hi, old friend. Thanks for having me. Hey, yeah. Reed. So hello. the reason we have Dr. Caldwell on here today is because he is from New York City. He's the chief of service for Perlman Department of Emergency Medicine, and he's the EMS director for NYU Health System EMS. And so he is in the thick of it. And uh, we thought we could get a perspective by someone who is really in the, in the ground zero trenches. Yeah, Dr. Caldwell, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us here. We're really interested in, you know, once again, Shannon was speaking to how inundated we feel in Colorado and we're not nearly where you guys are at. So we're really grateful for your time and we, we know you're super busy. And Reed's actually hometown for us. I mean, Reed is from here and he moved to New York. So you're, you're a transplant there a little bit. So I feel like you're close That's to That's right. Home. You know, you, you, said I was, you said I'm from New York City. But I'm actually Boulder County native. Yes. Representing. Steph, why don't you tell your history of, uh, of Reed? Reed and I go back a few moons ago. He was a partner of mine on an ambulance here in Boulder County for, for many years before he went and did bigger and better things. Was he your EMT or were, was he the paramedic? Why oh, you got to bring that up. He, he was your EMT? <laughs> he was my EMT. I was a medic and Reed was my EMT. So, so now he's right. chief of service at Perlman Department of Emergency Medicine and EMS director really, in New York. Really yeah. accomplished right now. 
That's okay. You're beautiful. <laughs> oh, I got to just stick with that. That's fading too. <laughs> I, I, I think you still are really influential in some of my most important skills. That is so nice, Reed. Thank you for saying that. So Reed, I thought we could start out by just giving us a picture of right now. Like, I know you've been texting me about what's going on. You kind of keep, keep me up to date and it sounds terrible, to be honest. So I was wondering if you could give us a glimpse of what it, what it looked like you know, when you were in your last shift or where you were on the streets with EMS. What's it looking like right now? Well, right now it's kind of it's kind of a weird state of affairs because when I look out the window, it's it's sunny and clear and it's a beautiful day. I live on the 40th floor of a high rise and I look down at the streets and it's the, it's mid afternoon and the streets are frozen. There is not a person out. There is no traffic where there normally is a large amount of traffic. There are nobody on the sidewalks. It's really kind of it's peaceful in kind of a bizarre way. However, when you go out and walk around things still feel kind of tense. And then in the emergency department, it's, it's really kind of mayhem. We have large numbers of very sick patients. Overwhelming majority of the patients in our emergency departments have fever and or cough. There are quite a few that are fairly hypoxic and have fairly high oxygen requirements. And in any ER in the, in the city right now, you'll see a large number of patients that are on ventilators. Every emergency department is working hard to keep their intubation and rapid sequence stuff stocked uh, because we're seeing we're seeing a large number of intubations each shift. Yeah, that sounds crazy. I, I, when I called you the other night, the first thing that was funny that struck me is you said, "Can you hear me okay through my papper?" Right. So that was the first thing you said. You just wearing your papper for the whole shift, and I think you said you intubated four people that day. That's right. We we've been taking this very seriously for quite some time. And in all of our emergency departments, we created a respiratory zone. So we, we identified beds, 10, 12, 15 beds, which ED you're in. And uh, we decided those beds were going to be for isolation. Anybody with fever or cough gets put in a mask and put in that area. And any staff working in that area has full PPE on the entire time they're working in there to keep themselves protected. Yeah, that's, that's craziness. And we've been talking about that in RER as well, the kind of cordoning off zone, so to speak, so that you don't have to be donning and doffing your PPE so often. It's kind of like you're stuck in that zone. We'll get into that at the end here a little bit too, because I want to certainly get your recommendations and your take on what we should be doing as we move forward with this. But I thought we would go back just to kind of give an oversight of really basic virology and, and what is a virus and how do we get infected and, and what does this all mean? So I thought we could kind of just go through some basics here and then uh, obviously tie it back into COVID-19. So viruses are really small infectious particles and they can only reproduce by infecting a host, right? So they, they need something else. They need another, you know, human, bacteria, organism in order to reproduce. Otherwise, they're just sitting there not functional. When I say tiny, I mean they're tiny. They don't even have cells. They're so much smaller than that. that you could fit tens of millions of viruses on the head of a pin. So we are talking about these very, very small particles. And people say, well, is the virus alive or dead? The viruses can't reproduce on their own, so they're not living. They need that host in order to reproduce. The virus has DNA and RNA genome inside this protein shell. We call that a capsid. Sometimes there's an envelope over that. Um, and that's really kind of it. That's what the virus particle is. And then it's just waiting. It's looking for a host. So if it infects one of uh, the human cells, it gets in there and then it commandeers that cell and kind of takes over. So the other thing about viruses is they're just ubiquitous. There are tons of viruses. 
Scientists estimate that there's about 10 to the 31 viruses at any given time. That is a one followed by 31 zeros. That is a huge number, right? And so you kind of put in perspective that you're like, how are we not infected by viruses all the time? But remember, viruses are everywhere. They're in the ocean, they're in hot climate, cold climate. They're, they're kind of all over, so they can affect all different organisms. Um, they even affect bacteria. So they come in all shapes. And uh, Reed, maybe you want to touch base with, you know, why do, what, what is a coronavirus? How do we get that name? Yeah, coronavirus is something that we are familiar with. So coronavirus is one of the causes of, of common cold and upper respiratory infection. This specific one is why we're calling it novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is while, while we are familiar with and our bodies are familiar with the coronavirus family, our bodies and immune systems aren't familiar with this specific one. And the name coronavirus comes because uh, it's actually shaped like a crown. Yeah. So if you looked at it in a microscope, you would see this crown shape and that's how it that's right. got its name coronavirus. And that's, again, when we say novel coronavirus, novel just means new coronavirus. It's a virus that we haven't yet been exposed to. And they think that the theory is that the virus jumped from an animal species to humans and then humans started to spread it amongst themselves. And so that's why we haven't seen this virus because it actually came from an animal. And the name COVID-19 is kind of interesting because it just really stands for what it is. It's a coronavirus, so that's the COV of COVID-19. Infectious disease, that's the ID. And then it was discovered in 2019, so we got COVID-19. The official name of this virus is SARS-CoV-2, which is a, a severe acute respiratory syndrome virus. And again, we've seen the SARS-CoV-1 virus previously. So when we think about how does this virus start spreading from human to human, you know, it's not tricky. We kind of all know how this happens. A person starts shedding virus particles. And then they're walking down the street and they sneeze and they cough. And then that spews some droplets into the air. And then that droplet lands on some substance or table or something. And then another person walks by and touches it and then touches their face. And now they've been exposed. Voila, they have the virus now as well. So we, we've had a lot of talk with this virus as to what kind of virus is it, meaning is this droplet or is this airborne? And maybe, uh, Reed, you'd like to just touch on that a little bit. Why are we concerned about that? Sure. One thing real quick about touching our face that I've been telling people is it's, it's your entire face. It's your eyes, it's your nose, and it's your mouth. I've been telling people if, you're, if your hands are too dirty to lick, then they're too dirty to pick your nose and they're too dirty to rub your eyes. I feel like a lot of people don't maintain that same standard and are, people are happy to rub their eyes with dirty hands when there's no way that they would think their hands are clean enough to lick. And out in New York City, I'm seeing a lot of people wearing latex gloves out in public, which it shows me that people don't understand how this is transmitted because people are, have, have glove-covered hands, but they're still touching their phone and their eyes and their face with these dirty gloves. Wearing gloves does not, does not bypass the need for good hand washing. Yeah. It's funny that we're thinking about New York, you know, and I trained in New York City, and I remember I was riding the subway once, and there was a meth addict on the subway, and... She had a dollar bill and she was scraping her skin with the dollar bill, like, like, like it was like a Brillo pad type thing, you know, buffer, like you would use in the shower. And I remember at that point, I was like, I really just need to switch to a credit card. I don't really want to deal with cash in, in New York City, but I, I digress. I think that that's a great point that you want to keep away from your face. And that's really why, you know, the mask can help for one, because it just reminds you not to touch your face. That's right. Don't touch your face and hand washing and hand cleansing is the name of the game. So as far as droplet versus airborne, 
it all has to do with the size of the particle, the weight of the particle, and whether it hangs in the air. So, and, it, and we are, we're familiar with droplet versus airborne precautions and isolation for disease processes that we already know. The, the most stringent it would be airborne precautions and airborne spread because these are, these are disease processes that linger in the air. So like measles, SARS, chicken pox, TB, these are um, microorganisms that are transported, transmitted by airborne droplet nuclei. And we know that they, they have quite a bit of spread and that they, they can hang in the air. And those require the N95 mask and, and really are very contagious. And then the droplet, droplet form and droplet isolation, these are infections like influenza. And the thought is that they can travel anywhere from three to six feet. They generally don't, they're a little heavier is my understanding. They generally don't linger in the air as much. And these are what would land on your hands, land on a desk and be, be residual on something like a pen. That's clearly why they kind of have this six foot rule is because of what you just said. They think that these droplets can get thrown, you know, six feet. And then the size of the droplet does matter because those very small particles that are infectious, those nuclei, as you call them, they're light enough that they just float in the air kind of by the, the whiffs of wind that are going by in normal circulation, as opposed to a true droplet, which might remain in the air, you know, after someone sneezes for a short period of time, but then it ultimately kind of settles down because it's heavy. I think that's important for people to understand that these recommendations that when you're in public or when you're in a park near people during this in the current environment, it, that's why it's important to maintain a minimum of a six foot distance from people. No one's making up that number. That's a, that comes from science and how this how these droplets are spread. Yeah, good point. Good point. So Reed, so since I've got a couple brilliant brains here, when we're talking about this six foot distance, is that six foot distance? Is that if somebody coughs or sneezes that you need to be that far away? Or is that just if somebody is standing, breathing, and they're contagious, you need to also be that far away? I would say there's two answers to that. It, it really has to do with the coughing and the sneezing. However, okay. we are in such a bad place as a country, and it is so imperative that we, we flatten that curve and, and try and do the best we can to fit this disease and the number of people that are sick within the confines and capabilities of our healthcare system that I don't think there's, I don't think there's such thing as too conservative right now. So six feet is six feet. Okay. Um, doesn't matter if people are coughing or not. That's, that's what I would vote. So everyone out there, six feet, at least six feet is at, what we're talking about. At least. And that's, I appreciate that. And that's what I wanted to kind of reiterate there. And then one last question on this. And, and we know, we know that six feet from the people you adore and your close friends is not sexy or fun. We get it. I'm a um, hugger, this, Reed. This, I try this, hugging this, everyone. This, there's plenty of hugs <laughs> later. Um, I know. This is not the time. Absolutely. And then real quick too, as far as that transmission goes, I just am curious as well. Intact skin, does that protect us? We talked about how small these, you know, this virus can be. Intact skin is protects us, right? Or is it just nose, eyes, mouth kind of stuff we worry about? Intact skin does protect you, but it can also sit on there. So the most important thing is to cleanse the intact skin. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Do you agree, doctor? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, it's really that transmission. It doesn't absorb through your skin. Uh, you are protected from that, but it can live on your skin for some time and then you're going to touch your eye or wipe your eye or, or whatever the case is. I thought we'd go quick into some of the like details of COVID. And first and foremost, I think the question on everyone's mind is what's the case fatality rate of COVID? Meaning when you catch COVID, what is the likelihood 
that you're going to die. You know, what's the mortality from this? And I think the problem that we're having is we just don't really have a good number for that. And there's these wide ranges and it's upsetting people actually when they say, oh, well, the CDC was wrong or China was wrong or New York's wrong. And it's really because we're trying to figure out what the total number of cases are. So the denominator of the problem, right? And then how many people we're tracking that died from that disease. So we need positive tests and we really need to track that. There are some studies out there that give us some ranges, but I think, again, we're still trying to hone in. And the numbers I've seen kind of from a range standpoint would be anywhere from 0.5 up to, you know, four, four or five. Actually, I've read somewhere. I don't want to be an alarmist by telling someone that it's 5%, but I've just seen that when I'm reading about it, right? And so we're saying, oh, what's the comparative of that? And how, how likely am I to die if I catch this disease? It does matter as well, and we'll get into this, whether you have at-risk comorbidities, your age, and things like that, it does change your rate as well. So when we talk about an overall number, that's talking about all comers that catch it, and then we can separate that out into different age group, different disease groups, and things like that. I don't know if you have anything else to add or, or things that you've seen on that read. Certainly the, the common at-risk groups, the immunocompromised, the elderly or older population, patients with pre-existing lung disease. Those patients are, are definitely at risk. Unfortunately, we are seeing people of all ages become severely ill. So we know we've seen 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds get very sick. And in fact, there are fatalities in those age ranges too. doesn't mean you're safe if you're not in one of those high-risk groups. And that's the other point to take home is it's a risk for everybody that catches it. There's some risk. And you know, I think, Reed, you probably got this as well. ASEP, which is our kind of ER doctor governing body, you know, sent out a, a notice that there was a 40-year-old ER doc that was severely ill on a vent. And so that puts it into perspective because I'm 49 and I'm like, wow, I thought I was still in the safe zone. But, you know, no one's kind of in the safe zone. Really, the safe zone is not catching it. And that's all part of the social distancing, using your PPE, doing all the things that we kind of talk about. Quick question, though, on these numbers and the reporting. Can I just ask of both Dr. Caldwell and you, Shannon, as far as the we know that not everyone can, is getting tested and there's not enough tests available. So we know that that number of, you know, the 500,000 plus that we put out there for COVID cases, that's not accurate. How accurate do you guys feel the death toll numbers are? Are those equally as inaccurate or well, think, more accurate? And, and Reed, you, you can answer this as well, but I, you know, it, it's kind of easier to track someone who dies, yeah. right? We, we can say, hey, there's a death. There is a tricky part in saying, is that death attributable to COVID-19 or was it attributable to something else? But it does skew the equation, obviously. If we say, hey, there's 500,000 cases, but we're not testing, maybe there's two times or three times that number of cases, and we still have a good grasp on the death rate, maybe that means the rate's a little lower than we thought, which is hopefully the case. But again, I think that it's those numbers, my takeaway from this is that it's just a range and you we really don't have the data yet to give us a good answer as to a mortality rate. That's right. And in New York, we're all fairly confident that we started seeing some of these cases three to four weeks before any testing was really occurring at all. So I agree with you, Steph, that the, the listed number of known cases is likely much lower than reality. Given that, that it's being updated daily, but my current understanding is that it's around a 12% hospitalization rate. So of, of people that get it, about one in 10 will need to go, be in the hospital. And then wow. of the people that are in the hospital, 
one in five of those, so about 20%, will need ICU-level care and are critically ill. And that's how we come up with these numbers that scare us as doctors when we say, how many beds do we have? How many ventilators do we have? How many ICU bed births do we have? You know, so, so all of those things are contributing to our, our stress about this. Getting into the details of COVID-19 again, the incubation period, which means how long, you know, kind of from when you're exposed to when you get sick, how long is that period of time? The median incubation period is five to six days, but the range is anywhere from one to 14 days. And so that's why you do see these recommendations that when you're exposed, you got to be home for 14 days. That's why they're giving you these numbers is because that's kind of the range of this. The other thing we're concerned about with viruses is viral shedding. So that is how I actually give you the disease. I need to start to replicate viral particles in me, and then I need to shed those viral particles so that when I sneeze, they go out into space, and then you pick them up. The concerning thing for me on this is that there has been studies out there that show that they can test viral particles one or two days before the onset of symptoms. So if they were to swab people's noses, and they have been doing that initially with these tests, some people didn't really become symptomatic for a few days, but their tests became positive. There are people who actually never got sick that tested positive as well. So they were a carrier for the virus and they were Mm -hmm. shedding viral particles potentially, but they just didn't show any symptoms. So this obviously is a concern when we're trying to contain this disease, so to speak. Yeah. And I know this has been a big concern for our pre-hospital folks here too. We've seen a lot of quote unquote exposures with some of our crews here because they went for a reason completely different than any COVID symptoms. You know, AFib is one I know of alternation, some other ones that didn't present with any COVID symptoms, yet were positive for COVID. And so that's why really, once again, we're just stressing this, you know, treat everyone as if they're a carrier. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is the viral load profile of COVID-19 is similar to influenza, meaning that it's peaking around the onset of symptoms. So around that time period, when you're starting to get symptoms, that's when you have the most viral particles. That's before your body has mustered up the defense to start to kill that virus. And again, that just leads to this concern that I have this viral load that's happening and I don't really know that I'm sick yet. And that's why social distancing and taking this seriously in the six feet and wearing a mask and all of this from, you know, our standpoint in the medical profession, it's no joke. Like we are really concerned about it and we want that curve flattened. Just to slide something in here real quick. I'm really concerned about social distancing and I think it's important. I know that's become an established term over the past couple of weeks. I think it's critically important that we focus on physical distancing and social connection. I'm really concerned about the next wave of disease that's going to come along, which is anxiety and depression and feeling of isolation. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that's going to be a, a real burden on people and a real burden on healthcare. So we've, it's been called officially social distancing, but I think it's really important that we remain physically separate, but work really hard to uh, connect with one another during this time so people still are laughing and having fun and having dance parties on FaceTime. I really appreciate that you're addressing that, Reed, because I do think that that is a big mental thing that we're facing right now. And you even said that when we were doing this podcast, I was like, I'm going to FaceTime you during the podcast. And you're like, great. That's like a social event for me, you know, like, so I get to see your face while we're doing the podcast. We joke that this is also our happy hour Zoom time together. (laughs) That's right. It's like, you know, you're, we're in this really tough time where everything is uncertain and it's really scary at baseline. And then you say, oh, and by the way, we don't want you to have any hugs for a few months and we don't want you to feel that great energy of all of your favorite people near you. So any way to manage that and to enjoy things 
online that are beautiful, to see the sunlight, to see the blue sky and to connect with the people that make you feel good. I think it's more important now than ever. And luckily we do have the online option now, right? Think That's this right. happened all before social media. We wouldn't we'd be by ourselves. <laughs> Another number or, or data point that we worry about is the reproduction number. And the basic reproduction number, we call that the r naught. That's the expected number of cases directly generated by one case in a population where all individuals are susceptible to an infection. So that means that if I catch it, how many people am I going to give this to? So that is a, a real key number. If we look at things like other diseases, like measles, measles can transmit their r naught number can be up to 18, right? In COVID-19, we're thinking right now it's around 1.4 to 3.9. So it's somewhere in that range. But that gives you an idea of kind of looking at the, uh, these other disease processes. If you look at Ebola, for example, Ebola has a reproduction number at about 1.5 to 2.5. So it's still in the same range as COVID here. Uh, you have any thoughts on that, Reed? Yeah, I know that Italy was somewhere 2.76 to 3.25. So they're showing us that it's actually fairly high. Obviously, they're ahead of us kind of on, I always, I'm looking at Italy to see how our numbers are tracking because I feel like yeah. we're, you know, we're just following in their footsteps. The other concern with this is what, what I addressed a little bit before is that, you know, infection in asymptomatic individuals, it gets a bit dodgy because then numerous people, if they are having this infection and they're walking around and they're not physically separating from other people, you know, they can pass on the disease and everyone thinks it's fine because they're in the grocery store and they look fine, but they actually have this and they can be transmitting it. So that can definitely change that r not number, meaning how many people are they going to actually give it to? Yeah, and again, I just want to underscore the importance of the only way we're going to win this is to make, for everybody to participate and maintain that physical physical distance and, and be responsible about this. That's for the, for the layperson and all of us in the community. And then for those of us in healthcare, both in emergency departments, hospitals, and in the pre-hospital setting, you know, we have to start every patient interaction with, should I have a mask on? The answer is probably yes. And does this patient have COVID? Even though they fell down the stairs or even though they're having a GI bleed, do they also have COVID? Yeah. And that's how we're functioning. And we're in Colorado, right? You're in New York, which is the right. hotspot. But in Colorado, for our EMS agencies and our hospitals, I tell everybody, you assume everybody has COVID. Our response model right now is one person going in in full protection for every call to determine kind of what the level of protection the rest of the crews are going to need, what's the minimal number of crew members they're going to need. And in the ER, you know, I'm in my whole shift. I'm wearing PPE the whole shift. And that's just a hospital mandated protocol. And I know you guys are even worse. And we'll get to at the end of this, you know, I'll read, I'm going to have you kind of spell out what's going on in, in New York and we can address that. And, and an example of how widespread this is and to demonstrate your point is my shift two evenings ago, I had a healthy 70 year old woman who was brought in because she had fallen down the stairs. She just tripped, tripped and fell while she was doing chores. She had a broken femur. She had a broken humerus. And oh, by the way, on her vital signs, she had a temp of 101. She had no idea that she was febrile. And so not only did she have these traumatic injuries, which brought her into the emergency department, but she also was COVID positive. Yeah. A couple of things too that we hear about uh, are special populations, meaning kids. And I've heard a lot of wide ranging things kind of in the media about kids. And I want to clarify that a little bit is that with COVID-19, it's not that kids are not getting infected. They're getting infected at the same rate as other people. They are having more mild symptoms as a whole compared to other people. And there's a lot of theory and speculation as to why that is. But I don't want people out there to think that kids aren't getting it and they're kind of safe 
No, they can catch it and they can still have bad outcomes. We talked about percentages. There's always a risk when you get it. And so we want to avoid you know, them transmitting it. Kids are great carriers of all kinds of viruses, right? We know that because they bring it home to the house and then I'm sick for the whole winter because they were at school. So they can definitely carry this virus and pass it on to their families, their mom, their dad, their grandma, their siblings. So again, don't think that kids are like this special category, so to speak. Um, they can still catch it like everybody else. I also read a report about pregnant women, like are they at higher risk? And they seem to be at the same risk as non-pregnant women. There were two cases of pregnant women being in the ICU. One went on ECMO. So that's stressful at, at this point. As far as what I read, they are both currently surviving. But it's obviously scary in the situation where we're about two people there when you have a pregnant mom. We touched on this briefly. We talked about vulnerable groups. And really what we're kind of defining that is people who are at higher risk to have bad outcomes, go to the ICU or have higher mortality. And that's people above the age of 70, people with hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, chronic respiratory disease, people with cancer. They're at a higher risk than the, than the general population. And we also have uh, read that predictors of ICU emission include COPD, cardiovascular disease, and hypertension. And I was curious, read there on the front line, are you noticing that? Like, is it just people are just getting sick and, and going to the ICU or do you see trends like predictors? Yeah, the, the predictions you listed, we're seeing. The other group, and I don't know that anybody's really been able to figure out why this is, but we're seeing men in 30s, 40s, and 50s really not do well. We're seeing some very critically ill, fairly healthy male patients with, that are COVID positive having hypoxic respiratory failure. Well, that's, that, that's the best news I've heard. All week, Reed. Thanks for that. <laughs> you, and, you and I are in the same boat. There. Right. Uh, that is interesting because I think the numbers that, um, in general are, that are being put out there is there's a higher mortality in men in general. So kind of interesting. I wonder why. I've gotten this question a lot from Cruz. They were asking about immunity. Once you get COVID-19, are you, are you safe from COVID-19? And it's too early to know, really. We don't, we don't know what the immunity is once you've been exposed to COVID or had the infection. Our hope is that it's similar to SARS or MERS. And, and in those illnesses, you know, immunity lasts for up to three years. It's very unlikely to kind of get sick again that same year if it was SARS or MERS. So my hope is that COVID-19 is the same, but I don't have any real data on that. I don't know if you've heard something different, Reed. Well, one thing that would point to the fact that we may be immune, and a lot of great work is happening at some centers. I know specifically Mount Sinai Health System here in New York City is looking at taking the taking blood from people who have recovered from COVID and taking their plasma, which apparently contain, after you've, immediately after you've recovered contains a very high number of antibodies, a large amount of antibodies against COVID. And they're going to try and give antibody-rich plasma against COVID to this most critically ill COVID patient. Wow. Yeah, I haven't heard that yet. That's, yeah, that's, that's cool. interesting. We know about the virus's survival in the environment. They've done some studies on that. If you kind of sneeze and shoot that droplet up in the air, that, could, that can last in the air for up to three hours. And so that's why we're concerned when we do these aerosolized generating procedures in the ER or in EMS. We know that it can last up to 24 hours on cardboard um, and then two to three days on stainless steel. So you know it can just live out there. And that's why you got to make sure that you're not touching your face. After I touch my Amazon package. Yeah, Steph. This is a good reason for us to stop spending money on Amazon. Oh, come on. He's been trying to get me stop the Amazon purchases for a long time. This is what he thinks is going to be the trigger. 
As far as treatment goes, I would love to have a lot of data here for you, but we really have nothing. There's no approved treatment or vaccine. People have tried different things, but we don't really have a good take as to, hey, this is the exact way that, and regimen that you should use against COVID-19. Reed, I don't know if you want to speak to this a little bit as to things that you guys are doing in your facilities. As far as treatment for the outpatient, the minor to moderate symptoms, we're recommending the usual care, symptomatic care with Tylenol, um, rest, hydration. There's some questionable data that NSAIDs like ibuprofen may make the disease a little bit worse. So when possible, we're choosing Tylenol over ibuprofen or other NSAIDs at this time for pain relievers and antipyretics or fever, fever reducers. The other practice changer, particularly, which is tough because the many of these COVID patients are wheezing, is there's also thought that steroids usually given for asthma exacerbation may worsen the disease course also. So if there's any question that patients have COVID, we also are avoiding steroids. And then as far as specific COVID treatments, there's a number of different things. There's some HIV medications that are being looked into and utilized. Um, there's some IL-6 drugs. There's also some Plaquenil, which is a drug that's commonly used for rheumatologic disease. Those are all being and used and studied. I'd say with, with regard to those medicines, it's really important that we protect the supply of those medicines. So those, those are really being reserved for the sickest patients in the hospital under the direction of infectious disease docs. Yeah, and we, we saw that the, the run on hydroxychloroquine after President Trump announced that this was a drug that would, would treat this condition. There was a run on that medication. And essentially, even at our facility now, you need an ID doc approval in order to even prescribe that medication. Right. So I was wondering if we could kind of sum this up or, or tie it together with your actual experience, Reed. Like I was, I was hoping that you could maybe take us from those first couple cases when you started to read about this, and then you're in this spot now where you're innovating four people on your shift. Um, and I would like to hear it from two perspectives. The first being the EMS system, because I think a lot of our listeners would like to, to know what you're doing as a medical director and as a system there. And then also at what's happening in the ER. So maybe you could start, tell us about the EMS system kind of from the beginning to where we are right now. One important thing that's happened in New York City, and I encourage everyone to do this if possible, is there are screening questions that are being asked by dispatch. And there is an FC, which stands for fever cough. There's an FC code placed on any call type that screens positive. So while I think we need to assume that all of our patients have COVID, could possibly have COVID, I think it, it's been really helpful, particularly in the first phases of this crisis, that dispatch was alerting our crews early that, pay, that the patient has fever cough. And I think people out there that know about dispatch talk about it. That, that was that EIDS tool. So that's the emerging infectious disease screening tool that like ProQA has. So when they're asking their medical screening questions, you know, as a medical director, you could add certain questions on there in order to try to screen that's right. It's also really important that appropriate PPE is being utilized and, and good safe practices are happening. You know, there, you have to protect yourself. You know, most calls people are wearing here are wearing masks all the time for all call types. In order to conserve PPE, we're asking people to use their masks, their regular masks and their N95s for the duration of their shift. No longer is it one mask per patient interaction, but as long as they don't get soiled or, or wet in any way, we're asking people to continue to use them throughout their shift. And, and that's safe. 
The exception to that would be these super spreading events. And a super spreading event is anything where there's airway intervention. So an intubation, CPAP use, nebulizer use, CPR, those are super spreading events. And they put providers of both pre-hospital and in the emergency department at much higher risk. And so and we're asking that the PPE be replaced completely after each one of those events. Can I, can I ask you if you've a couple things with that? Are you guys kind of trying to limit or totally ruling out doing NEBS and CPAP or are you approaching that on a patient by patient basis? No, we're approaching it very systematically. We've asked that NEBS basically not be used. Some, some agencies have been able to acquire bands, breath actuated nebulizers, uh, yeah. which don't create an aerosol and don't cause super spreading. But if those aren't available, we're asking people not to utilize nebulizers. Some, some agencies in some areas I know throughout the country have moved to carrying meter dose inhalers on the ambulance. That comes both in albuterol and in atrovent. So for many patients, that can be an appropriate bridge to the emergency department. We are basically not using CPAP, CPAP or BiPAP at all in the pre-hospital setting. And with regard to intubation, we have moved to using king tubes earlier rather than performing any sort of direct laryngoscopy because the, the king tubes and, and other airway devices have shown to have uh, less super spread. Yeah, I'm feeling strongly about that as well for my folks is that, you know, I'm just not seeing a reason why you need to innovate somebody during this pandemic, meaning you move to the king tube. Like that should be your go-to device just to try to control things and protect, uh, you know, the provider in the field. So I would definitely lean heavily towards the king tube. And I think kind of me just thinking through it in theory, that's even better than, you know, if you have a bag valve mask, it's hard to keep that seal. The king tube seal is a little bit better and kind of keeping it from spewing those aerosolized particles, which is what our goal is. I totally agree. And when we're talking about these extra glottic and superglottic airways, we have to remember, right, that patient obviously cannot have a gag. Read in your system, do they have RSI pre-hospitally? We do not have RSI pre-hospitally. Okay, nor do we here right now. So then the question is, if we're not CPAPing, how does your agency feel about nasal innovation in the, in the time? Is one better than the other if we have a really sick respiratory that has a gag? We either, you know, historically we've done CPAP. I've been a medic long enough where we didn't have CPAP when I was a new medic, so we nasally intubated more often. Would you say one or the other is better on that sick respiratory? Would you steer towards nasal intubation over CPAP then? I think nasal intubation sounds like a sounds like a good alternative. This is going to be really system and medical director and protocol specific. Yeah. So I know that throughout the country, there's going to be wide variability there. Yeah. Some some medical directors and systems will prefer that you just bag the patient in. There will be unavoidable direct laryngoscopy intubations. The the goal is to minimize those as much as possible. Okay. What do you think, Shannon? Yeah, I think I think it is system dependent, and you know, there's some some paramedics out there that haven't really done a nasal intubation at this point, just because they're young medics and it yeah. wasn't big in their system. So all that needs to be addressed. I am interested to hear that you are having them wear that same PPE for the whole shift. I know there's discussion as to whether we should save that beyond a single shift. So I've been looking at data in that. I did come across a good kind of article that's out there from Dr. Sai. I think that's how you say his name. It's T-S-A-I. He invented the N95. And so this little post that I got was from 
a Dr. Jennifer Lopez in Austin, Texas. And I think she reached out to Dr. Sai and then it came across my desk. So I didn't find this, but I was just reading it and it was interesting. You know, he talks about that mask and, and how it works and how you protect it. So it's kind of interesting if you can see this, but he has a mask reuse method. He has two different suggestions for that. The first suggestion is that you use four N95s in four paper bags. And then you number those four paper bags, one through four. And then each day, you just wear the next mask, one, two, three, four, and then you're back to mask one. And really what we're looking at is how long that virus lasts. And we said, you know, on, on hard surfaces, 24, 48, 72 hours. So you're beyond that, meaning that virus particle should not be infective anymore when you get back to mask number one. So I thought that was interesting. Again, this is not anything that I'm putting out there. This is totally medical director dependent. I just thought it was an interesting read. The other thing that Dr. Tsai recommended was that you could actually hang your N95 mask in the oven at 70 degrees Celsius, which is 158 degrees for 30 minutes. And it's reported that COVID-19 cannot survive at a temperature of 149. So he's kind of going over that temperature. He says that the N95 mask can tolerate that. When this initially came out, I was thinking about putting an N95 out in the sun because we know that UV can uh, kill viruses. But he does not recommend that because he thinks that breaks down the actual structure of the mask. Mm -hmm. So it's all interesting kind of when you're looking at this on how to do it. I think there's a lot of information out there. And, and what I would say is it is changing. By the time we have this podcast, we might you hear this podcast, we might be doing some of these things just by the nature of the disease course. It's rapidly changing and we're trying to address it all. And just to be clear, we are in the pre-hospital setting here, we are changing gowns and gloves for every patient. The eye shields and the masks are being utilized through the shift. The last component which we've started focusing on is the termination of resuscitation. We know that any quote, any code, any CPR resuscitation in the pre-hospital setting is, is a risky event. It's a super spreading event. It requires a significant number of people within that six foot bubble around the patient. So you have a lot of, you have a lot of people there, a lot of exposure. You have chest compressions. You have, you have airway management. So that's a, that's a super spreading event. And then, then also those patients being transported into the emergency department, you then expose a whole bunch more people. So we're really looking at pre-hospital termination resuscitation in these patients and not transporting. Yeah, this is all crazy, interesting stuff that we need to address. I think that I could probably keep talking to you forever here. Forever we, and ever. We try to limit our podcast to 30 minutes and we've gone well over that. So I apologize to our listeners if you're like, hey, I wanted my 30 minutes, not a 45 minute podcast. But I was hoping that we could just end this with you giving us maybe three takeaway points. Three takeaway points from being in the heat of battle in New York City you know, the people that are across the country that aren't seeing quite that volume, and we hope we don't see that volume, but preparing us in case we do, give us three points to take home. Sure. My first point is the same as everybody heard on day one of EMT school is being safe BSI, the self-protection, mm. wearing the appropriate PPE and protecting yourself as well as the workforce to take care of these patients is critically important. Two is is airway intervention needs to change. Avoid intubation, avoid CPAP, don't use nebulizers if possible, go for the king tube and not intubation. And then last is self-care. This is really stressful, this is really hard. Everybody's busy, everybody's tired, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. So it's super important that we continue to show empathy to ourselves and to each other 
because we know that if we are empathetic and compassionate, we will do better and will remain healthy and will remain resilient as a team. Those are awesome points. And I, I really like that last one. I think it's super important. And you know, for all those people listening out there, it is stressful for everybody. Uh, and we understand that. And things change rapidly. So you know, recommendations change rapidly, which adds to the stress. And really, I think just being flexible and knowing that we're all trying to do the right thing moving forward is you know, it's going to go a long way. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast, Reed. Uh, I we're know so honored to have yeah, you. I know you're Thank super you. busy. And you probably want to go just look at the sunlight and walk your dog. Uh, but instead, you FaceTimed us for Match on a Fire. So I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been fun. And uh, I hope that this has been helpful as everybody ramps up. All the people listening out there, if you have any questions, you know you can email us at shannon at matchonafire.com. If you want to hear more from Reed, maybe we can con him into coming back. So just shoot me an email if you want to hear more of this stuff. We would love to have feedback just so we give you the podcast that you'd like. But with that, I'm going to sign off. Be safe out there. Remember the three things that Reed taught you today. And uh, I'll see you next time. See you guys. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening. 